0: Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you in this Sunday morning, in this day of the Lord, as we are coming to the point where we dedicate our attention, our hearts with diligence unto the preaching of God's word. And we pray and hope that the Spirit of God would minister to our hearts. This morning, we are continuing our message series, as you see on the screens, on the letter to the Hebrews. Our passage for today is in Hebrews in chapter four, verses seven through 16. Hebrews chapter four, verses seven through 16. If you are able, let us stand together for the reading of God's word. I will read all the verses for us. In Hebrews in chapter four, beginning in verse seven, where the Bible says, he again fixes a certain day today saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature heathen from his sight But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for standing here in your presence as we hope, we pray, we are confident that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts this morning, Father. Through the power of your everlasting word, And we trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would transform us and bring us closer to Christ-likeness, for your word is eternal and will always fulfill all the purposes for which is being spoken. We pray, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please be seated. Based on these verses from Hebrews in chapter four, Our message title for today is, Do Not Miss God's Rest. Do not miss God's rest. As you may recall, last week, our brother Paul Johnson already spoke to us from verses 7 through 10 in this chapter 4. Today, we are just simply doing a recap of what is mentioned in those verses because they serve as an integral background for our new verses today. As I'm sure you know, we are in the middle of the second warning message in this letter to the Hebrews. There are five warning messages in total in this book, and we are in the middle of the second one, which began in chapter 3, verse 7, and it goes through this chapter 4 and ends in verse 13. These warning messages in the letter to the Hebrews, they are directed at those who were exposed to the truth of the gospel. They even begin to profess allegiance to Christianity, but persecution and tribulations are tempting them to abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism. It is important for us to understand that all five warning messages in the book of Hebrews, as this one is, They are directed at those who are presumed to be unbelievers. Even though they heard the gospel and began to profess faith in Christ, they have not come fully to saving faith. It is essential that you remember that the warning passages in the book of Hebrews are directed at those who are unbelievers. Otherwise, there will be some serious misinterpretation of certain passages in this warning messages in the book of Hebrews. They are directed at those Who heard the gospel, they began to profess allegiance to Christianity. But the fact that they are defecting, they are walking away from Christ, that gives proof that they were never saved to begin with. And for that reason, the writer to the Hebrews is warning them, warning that group, do not miss God's rest. And what is God's rest? What is God's rest in this letter to the Hebrews? Again, as we learn, as our brother Paul Johnson mentioned, he refers to God's rest in salvation, God's salvation rest. And in this book, it has specific, two distinct characteristics that we can identify. God's rest has two distinct characteristics in salvation. First, God's rest refers to our earthly rest by faith. He refers to our rest on earth by faith. Since we are at peace with God. We know that our sins have been forgiven. And we have assurance of salvation. We are at peace with God. Because we no longer fear death. As we saw last month in Hebrews in chapter 2. Those without Christ. Without God in their lives. They are enslaved for the rest of their lives. All their lives. They are enslaved to the fear of death. However for us. Who are saved and have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, death no longer causes us to be fearful because the only thing that death can do to us as Christians is to deliver us into the presence of God. We no longer fear death. We no longer fear what would happen as we pass from this life to eternity. We are no longer fearful. We are at peace with God on this earth. That is what the apostle tells us in Romans in chapter 8, where he says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, the fear of death, the fear of judgment. No, you are no longer under that spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And he says, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is our earthly rest by faith. This is the peace that we have with God on earth, knowing that by faith we belong to him. Our sins have been forgiven. We will be with him when we pass from this earth unto eternity. And that is the second aspect of God's rest in salvation. Not only our earthly rest by faith, but the heavenly rest by sight. It is our rest in heaven by sight because we will be with the Lord forevermore. Notice that it is not a rest by faith, it is a rest by sight, why? Because we will see God. We will see him face to face. We will be with him forevermore. And this is the aspect, the heavenly rest by sight. This is the aspect of God's rest that the writer to the Hebrews is focusing on in the verses that we will be studying today. He does not want them to miss the heavenly rest. He does not want them to miss true salvation in the Lord. He tells them in verse seven, God again fixes a certain day today saying, through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The writer reminds them that King David had given a warning to the people of Israel that when they would hear the voice of God, they should not harden their hearts. And then he says in verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. What does that mean? He's telling them if Joshua, when he took the people of Israel into the promised land, if they were already secured of all the complete rest that God has to offer, then that would make no sense. It would not make sense for King David, 400 years after Joshua, to still give a warning to the people of Israel. If they were already secured in in going to heaven, why would there be a need for King David to say, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts? As though they could miss one other rest, another day of rest. And for that reason, proving that they were not secure in the complete rest of God, he says in verse 9, do not harden your hearts. And then in verse 9 he says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He has made the point that aside from the earthly rest that the people of Israel could have experienced in the promised land, there was yet another rest that they should look forward to, the rest in heaven. The Sabbath rest is simply representing the rest that they would have in salvation when they would go to heaven. And for that reason, he says in verse 10, for the one who has entered God's rest, he has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Those of us who are saved, those who are saved and have died, they are the ones who have received the heavenly rest. They are the ones who have received the complete rest from the Lord. And for that reason, he says, they have rested from their works. There is no more need for warnings when we go to heaven when we are in the presence of God, when we're already enjoying the heavenly rest. He says, once we go there, we have rested from our works. While we are here on this earth, we are still occupied with the cares of our earthly life. We are still laboring against sin and flesh. But once we go to heaven, we will rest from all of our labors. As the Bible tells us in Revelation in chapter 14, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Once we are in glory, the Bible tells us that we are no longer struggling, laboring against the same conflicts as we had here on this earth. He says that our works will follow us, no longer ahead of us, no struggles ahead of us. But our works, what we have completed already here on this earth, will be following us unto heaven as we see the Lord face to face. So now that he has made clear to them that even though, using the example of the people of Israel of old, that even though when they entered the promised land, they did begin to experience the earthly rest from God... They did not receive the complete rest from God because they did not receive heaven. They were disobedient to God and they did not go into the heavenly rest. And so he tells them, do not miss God's rest as some of them did. Some missed the heavenly rest. It is amazing to think that The generation of the people of Israel who left Egypt with Moses, they all died in the wilderness with very few exceptions. But even the newer generation, the ones who came after that, their children and their grandchildren, the ones who did inherit the promised land with Joshua, they did begin to experience the earthly rest. But similar to what their fathers did, they too disobeyed God. And for that reason, they too did not inherit the heavenly rest. That means that they died without salvation. That is the grander point that he's making to them. You have begun so well as they did in the past. They even entered into the promised land. But they ended so badly. Because they disobeyed God and they didn't make it to heaven. As the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes in chapter 7 in verse 8. Better is the end of all matters than the beginning of it. It's not just It is is not just how you begin something, but it's how you end it. He's telling them they began so well, they even experienced the earthly rest, but they didn't get to heaven. He tells them in verse 11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall as they did. And not only they say, and not only he says that they miss the heavenly rest, he compels them, he begs them, he pleads with them that they should be diligent to enter that rest. He says once again, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Literally, he's saying, let us be diligent to enter heaven. That word diligent means to do all you can to make every effort To do all you can. It means to make your spiritual life your priority. It means Colossians chapter 3 verse 2. Where the Bible says, set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. It means to make your life the greatest priority. It means to make your spiritual life the greatest priority that you may have here on this earth. Nothing is more important than to be diligent about entering heaven. Nothing is more important than to know that your testimony, that the fruit of your life, confirms that you are saved. I repeat, nothing is more important than to know that the fruit of your life confirms that you have salvation. And you may say, Preacher, isn't that salvation by works? Isn't that legalism? How can I be diligent to enter heaven? How can I make every effort to be saved? I cannot save myself. Is the Bible saying that salvation is actually by works? Absolutely not. What the Bible is telling us here is is what we read in Philippians in chapter two, where the Bible says, so then my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it is your responsibility to be diligent to enter heaven. It is your responsibility to be diligent about your spiritual life, to make your spiritual life your greatest priority on this earth. However, it is the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit in your life that confirm your salvation, not you. It is impossible for me and for you to produce fruits in my own life that could save myself. Yes, that would be legalism. Yes, that would be salvation by works, but that's not what the Bible says. In the very next verse, the Bible explains, it is the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit that confirms that we are saved. As it says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is my favorite verse in the Bible regarding the sovereignty of God in salvation. It is God who works in us to produce the fruit that confirms that we are saved. And did you catch that? It says that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means that it is God through his Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. It is God who works in us to desire to obey and gives us the ability to obey. He gives us the desire to obey, to will. And He gives us the ability to obey. He gives us the capacity for us to do, for Him to do, through us, what He wants us to do for His good pleasure. This is amazing. God does it all. It's not salvation by works, because it is all through the work of the Holy Spirit operating the fruits in our lives, generating and producing the fruits that confirm that we are saved. Therefore, when He says, when the Bible tells us that we must be diligent to enter heaven... What that means is that we must be diligent to surrender. Surrender to the will of God in your life because he will do it all. He will give you the desire to obey and he will give you the ability to obey. He will be the one producing the fruit that will confirm that you are saved and you belong to him. He's telling them, be diligent to enter that rest. Otherwise, beware of disobedience to God. Be diligent to enter heaven. Surrender to God. He will produce the works that will confirm your your salvation. But if you don't, you will disobey him. Beware of living a disobedient life before him. The ones who are saved are obedient to God. The ones who are not saved are disobedient to him. That is exactly what the Lord Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 verse 15 where he says if you love me you will obey me if you love me you will obey me the ones who are saved are diligent to enter heaven not because they produce the works that makes them to be that make them to be saved but because they surrender to god to the will of god and the holy spirit produces in them the fruit that confirms their repentance But otherwise, they will be disobedient to God because without the Holy Spirit in a person's life, it is impossible for us to make way into salvation. We will either be diligent to enter heaven by surrendering to him or we will be unsaved and disobedient and our lives will show that we do not belong to him. He says, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. It is important to note that he is not saying that a saved person can lose their salvation. Remember what I mentioned in the beginning, the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. It is important for us not to cause any misinterpretation of what the Bible is telling us. The five warning passages in the book of Hebrews are directed at those who are presumed to be unbelievers. He is not saying this for us believers, for Christians who are secure in their salvation to say, watch out because you may lose it. He's saying to you who is an unbeliever, you are even exposed to the truth of the gospel. You even begin to profess allegiance to Christ, but you are not being faithful to him because you are abandoning Christ. You are defecting. You are giving proof that you were never saved to begin with. It is to them that he's saying, be diligent to enter heaven. Pay attention to the message, so that no one will fall following the same example of disobedience. Whose disobedience is he talking about? What is the example of disobedience that he is warning them, that he's alerting them about? He said in verse 6, those who formerly had good news preached to them... They fail to enter God's rest. They fail to enter the ultimate rest, which is heaven. They fail to enter because of a disobedience. He's referring to their ancestors, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, who even entered, even those who entered the promised land, they began to experience the earthly rest. But they failed to enter heaven. He's once again saying that they experienced the, heaven, the earthly rest, but because of disobedience, they died without salvation. He's saying, do not do the same thing. Do not die without being saved by the Lord. And he tells them in verse 2 how they were disobedient. He says, they failed to enter heaven because they disobeyed. And how they disobeyed? He says, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They heard the word, but it did not produce faith in them. They heard the word, but it did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Certain translations say it was not mixed with faith. And someone may say, preacher, how can that be? How can this verse be for us today? How can the writer say that they heard the word and it it didn't produce faith? The Bible says for us in the church age, in the New Testament, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing the word. How could the writer say that they heard the word and did not produce faith in them? How could they say that to the church in the New Testament? The Bible is clear, isn't that Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the word. Ah, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, what the Bible says in Romans 10, 17 is, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Bible doesn't say that faith comes from hearing the word. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word. If faith would be produced in the heart of everyone simply because they are hearing the Word, then every time you give someone a track, every time a guest will come to the church for the first time, every time you preach the gospel to anyone, they will have to bow their knees and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior right then and there. Is that what happens? No. Even the Bible says that that's not what happens. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 14, that to the natural man, to the unbeliever, when they hear the Word... It is foolishness to them. It doesn't say that they fall to their knees and receive faith. On the contrary, it says that it's moronic. It is foolishness. Why? Because of Second Corinthians in chapter 4 in verse 4, where the Bible says that Satan, the God of this age, he has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ would not shine upon them. They are blinded by the God of this age. People can hear the gospel like the Hebrews did a thousand times and they still will not have faith unless they hear the word by the word. Faith doesn't come from hearing the word. Faith comes from hearing the word by the word. And what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of the person and works conviction of what that person is hearing at that time. The preacher is saying, you are a sinner. You must repent of your sins. You must ask God for forgiveness. You must ask God, ask Jesus to save your soul. That person is simply hearing the word. But when that person begins to hear the word by the word, the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of that sinner and says, yes, that is true. You are a sinner. You must repent. You must receive Jesus Christ as your savior. You must ask God for forgiveness. Yes, you must receive salvation today. And it is on that moment that salvation happens. That is exactly what happened to me. That is exactly what happened to each and every one of us here who are saved and Christians and believers in Jesus Christ our Lord. You may have heard the word of God a thousand times before and you didn't want anything to do with God. You didn't want anything to do with church. You, you had your family, your relatives. You, you, if anyone were to give you a tract, you would just trash it. You would hear the word and it was foolishness to you. But one day you simply did not hear the word. You heard the word by the word. Because the Holy Spirit came into your heart and said, yes, that is true. And you must repent. And you felt the weight of your sins. You felt the weight of your separation from God. And at that moment, that's when your salvation happened. You heard the word by the word. And when the writer to the Hebrews was saying this, I am sure that he was praying that those unbelievers to whom he's directing these warning messages, that they would hear the word, not simply his words, but that they would hear the word by the word. Each and every one of us, after we receive Christ as our savior and and we are saved forevermore, we continue to hear the word by the word in our spiritual life. Every single time that you come to church, the preacher may be preaching the word, And it's all okay, and you know those verses, and it's not doing much to your heart. But there is a moment that the preacher says something, or that a verse is mentioned from the Bible, or that an example is mentioned, and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and says, this is for you. And you know that you are being convicted at that moment, and it is not because of the power of the preacher. It is not because of who the preacher is. It's because the Holy Spirit is ministering to your heart at that moment. It is hearing the Word by the Word. And you are growing in faith and will continue to grow in faith in that manner. Because that's what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. A small word, a simple preposition, but it means a lot. He's hoping that they would hear the word by the word. Otherwise, as he said, he presents both ways to them. You either be diligent to enter heaven... By hearing the word, by the word, as the Holy Spirit will convict your heart and you will surrender to God so that he can save your soul. You can take no credit for that. All the glory goes to God. You can contribute nothing toward your salvation. Or you can remain remain unsaved. And that will be all on you. Because it is impossible to obey God without the operation of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll be able to take credit for that. For all eternity, you have no one to blame but yourself for for refusing and denying and rejecting Christ in your life today. He poses two ways to them, the narrow way or the broad way. Be diligent to enter heaven. Don't be like your ancestors from the people of Israel. Because if you are, beware of disobedience to God. And that will make you miss that rest. How does God make that judgment? What is the judgment too that God uses to define, to winnow out those who are saved from those who are not saved? It is in the Word. The Bible tells us in verse 14, For the Word of God is living and active. And sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no hiding from the Word of God. I may look like a Christian to you, and you may look like a Christian to me, but according to the Bible, only God knows those who are truly His. That is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Only God knows those who are truly his. There is no hiding from God. The Bible is clear, and we could do a very specific and elaborate word study on every single term in this verse. But the summary is this, that the word of God has the power to pierce and penetrate to the innermost part of your being and God knows exactly who you are. The Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows exactly who we are, and He knows exactly the motivations behind everything we do, behind everything we say. There is no hiding from Him. Now, I do not want to digress, but it is impossible not to notice what the writer to the Hebrews says when he says that the Word of God pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. That has caused much theological debate between those who say, one, people, there are those scholars who believe that we are a trichotomy. That means that we are a three-part component in our being. We are a body, soul, and spirit. As this verse seems to clearly indicate that the soul and the spirit are two different entities because he says that the word of God pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. But on the other hand, there are those who believe that we are a dichotomy, that we are simply body and soul, or body and spirit. That is, soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the Bible. They mean the same thing. And they say that based on the words of Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the Lord Jesus tells us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And yet in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, he says, the spirit is ready, but the body The flesh is weak. They say that it seems that Jesus uses body and soul interchangeably with body and spirit, as though soul and spirit are the same. We may not know the final, the definitive answer for this theological debate on this side of eternity, but let us not lose sight of the overall message of the verse. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying, whether soul and spirit are different or the same, what is most important for us to not forget is that God knows exactly who we are. The spirit of God, through the power of the word, He goes into the innermost part of our being. And he knows exactly who we are. There is no hiding from God. That's what he says in the very next verse. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no creature hidden from God. There is no hypocrisy before God. I can behave like a noble Christian inside the church and act like I'm holier than thou. But God knows exactly who I am and he knows exactly who you are. There is no hiding from God. As David says in Psalm 139 verse 7 and 8, Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I hide from your presence? Because if I ascend to the highest heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the place of the dead, in Sheol, you are there. There is no hiding from the Lord. And he says, all things are open and naked and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That expression simply means that we are all one day going to be accountable to God. We will all have to give an account to our life before the Lord. Every human being will be brought into the presence of God and every human being will either receive his praise or will receive his justice. All things are laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And with this expression, the writer to the Hebrews, he concludes his warning message to the unbelievers. He is certain in his heart that they were cut to the core. If the Lord was working through his Holy Spirit to convict them to not miss God's rest in salvation, that they will be convicted to repentance, to receive Christ instead of abandoning Him, but to move closer to Him. Realizing that they were being cut to the core, that they were convicted by such convicting truths that He was preaching to them, He then offers them a word of comfort, not only to them, but to all of us. He says, trust our perfect High Priest. Trust our perfect high priest. He says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He reminds them of Jesus Christ as a perfect high priest, different than all the high priests from the Old Testament who continually offered animal sacrifices day after day, Not to forgive, but simply to cover the sins of the people. But Jesus Christ was different. He was the perfect and our great high priest. Because he offered not continually the sacrifice of animals, but he offered himself once and for all. Not to cover our sin, but to forgive our sins completely. Forgive our past sins, our present sins, even our future sins. As John the Baptist says in John chapter one, verse twenty-nine, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Christ is the perfect High Priest who once and for all was sacrificed. He is our comfort. Let us not run from Him. He's saying, but let us come closer to Him, as He says. How can we know? That Jesus' sacrifice for us was accepted by the Father for our forgiveness, because he passed through the heavens. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the heavens. Jesus passed through the first heaven, which is the earth's atmosphere. He passed through the second heaven, which is the realm of the planets and the galaxies, until he reached the third heaven, which is the abode of God, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He passed through the heavens, giving credence, giving confirmation that the Father accepted his sacrifice for us. And he tells us now that the Lord has completed the work of salvation, what must we do? He says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. He says in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. To those who are being tempted to quit, he's saying, do not do so, but come to the Lord because he knows exactly what you're going through. The Lord has struggled. The Lord had been tempted in every possible temptation that you and I can experience here on this earth and exponentially more. And so he says, trust that our perfect high priest can sympathize with us because he overcame it all without sinning, without falling. He can give us victory over sin as well. Let us come to him in prayer. Trust our high priest because he gives us comfort when we pray. He gives us comfort when we pray. Brothers and sisters, I believe that one of the ministries that are the most neglected in our lives today is our capacity to pray unto the Lord. There are so many times that we pray to God simply in our moments of desperation, but oh, if we could only know how God wants us to be in sweet fellowship with him day after day, moment after moment, praying without ceasing, meaning praying persistently in our fellowship with him. We have absolutely no reason, no excuse, nothing that can justify that each and every one of us won't be prayer warriors before God. The Lord is the one who can help us. He is the one who gives us the comfort in every circumstance, in every struggle, in in every problem that we can face here on this earth. He is the one who gives us comfort when we pray, for he says in Hebrews in chapter 2, Since he himself, since Jesus was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He is the one who knows exactly what you're going through. Do not walk away from him, but come closer. He knows what you're going through. He knows exactly what is happening in your life. And he tells them, he prays for us before the Father. We can trust him as our perfect high priest because he is praying for us. He is interceding for us before the Father even as we speak. Did you know that? That the Lord Jesus is speaking your name to the Father. There is nothing hidden from him. And he's interceding for us as we speak. For me and for you. The Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter 7... He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus is interceding for us right now. And not only the Lord Jesus is interceding, he's praying for us before the Father. The Bible also tells us in Romans in chapter 8 in verse 26, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you as well. With groanings that cannot be expressed in words that we can understand. But in sacred communications between the Trinity. Jesus intercedes for you before the Father. And Romans 8.26 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you before the Father. The entire Trinity is working in intercession for you. In watching over your life for you to be obedient to God. In the desire to obey and in the ability to obey so that you remain faithful to the Lord in your spiritual walk. And he tells them in conclusion, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He tells them, do not walk away from Christ, but come closer to him. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, Do not give up on the Lord because of persecutions and tribulations. Otherwise, you will be given proof that you do not belong to him. But persist in the midst of all afflictions and tribulations and come closer to him with confidence to his throne of grace in prayer. And he says, as we go to the Lord in prayer, notice it says that we will receive mercy. The Lord will give us the assurance that we have been made clean. We will receive mercy as we go to the throne boldly in prayer before the Lord. And not only will we receive mercy, the Bible says, as you continue to pursue him in prayer, you continue to find grace. You receive mercy as you continue to pursue grace. You receive mercy as you continue to pursue grace in prayer. Grace gives us the blessings that we do not deserve. Mercy keeps us from the misery that we do deserve. He gives us mercy as we continue to receive grace from him as we pursue it. God is so great. God is so awesome. But he gives us one last word of advice. So that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. In the appropriate time. In the specific time. That simply means that we must take heed of the promptings of the Spirit to seek the Lord. Do not delay once you are convicted and the Holy Spirit of God is ministering to your heart and convicting of that, whatever that matter will be in your life that is happening right now. The Bible says, go to the Lord in prayer. Do not miss that time. Do not miss the tugging of the Spirit. Otherwise, your heart will be hardened and you dismiss it. As the Bible tells us in Hebrews in chapter three, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that no one, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, it is important for us to be prompt to the tugging of the Spirit, to the ministering of the Spirit in our lives. Do not miss God's rest was the warning that the writer to the Hebrews gave to those who were unbelievers. He pointed to them that similar to their ancestors, some had missed the heavenly rest and and he doesn't want them to follow the same example. He says, be diligent to enter heaven. Otherwise, you'll simply be disobedient to God and you'll not be able to enter. But trust that all the work that confirms your salvation, that all the work has already been done by our perfect and great high priest. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your savior, If you have never repented of your sins, I pray this morning that the Spirit of God will allow you to hear the Word by the Word so that you'll be convicted and confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful because one day you did open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We are thankful, Lord, for the work of salvation in our lives. For you have given us the understanding that it is simply not about us. We had nothing to contribute for our salvation. But we thank you for all the work that you have done fully and completely. As when Christ said that it was all paid for, it is finished, it was all done through his work at the cross and proven and accepted by his resurrection. We thank you, Father, for these words of admonition, but these words of hope and faith as well, and edification, because your word tells us that we can trust in you, our perfect high priest, as we know, Lord Jesus, that you are interceding and praying for us right now. May your blessing be with those this morning who are being ministered by your Holy Spirit to receive Christ as their Savior, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.